He's big and strong, he's sad and mad, and a little bit funny. You are listening to the Crash Program. Welcome to Season 2 of the Crash Program. I'm your host, Crash Barry. Season 2, a.k.a. Tough Island, is where I tell stories about living on Maine's most remote inhabited island. The Crash Program is commercial-free thanks to listener support via Patreon, where five bucks a month gets you all sorts of perks, including a limited-edition Mary Margaret sticker and access to a Patreon-only audio collection of stories from my time in the U.S. Coast Guard fighting the war on drugs and the war on Haitian refugees. Plus, after six months, you'll receive a signed copy of my novel, Sex, Drugs, and Blueberries, or the print version of Tough Island. Ten bucks monthly gets you the stuff I just mentioned, plus an invite to a really fun annual meetup in Maine. Visit CrashBerry.com for all the details. Now, on to the program. Chapter 9 I returned to Matinicus on March 10th. 1992. Captain Edwin Mitchell met me at his shop and gave me a work list. Please paint these 200 buoys and uh, splice these piles of pot warp together. I'll be back at the end of the month to start setting the gear, so you should have plenty of time to get it done before then. So uh, let's go check out your new living quarters upstairs. Yes. Then Captain Edwin headed back to the mainland for a couple more weeks of vacation. These couple of weeks were my easiest time on the island. The work was undemanding, and I set my own schedule. Island bootlegger, may I take your order? I was boozing a lot. Yeah, I'd like a case of Budweiser cans. Because the island bootlegger, a bottle of Lord Calvert Canadian whiskey, had kindly decided to extend me credit on whiskey and cigarettes. And, uh, five packs of Camel Lights, please. Until I started making money with Captain Edwin. Oh, by the way, do you have any more rolling papers? My first couple of nights back on the island were spent drinking alone. Listening to the radio. You're listening to WERU. And thinking about my dead friend, Frankie. (laughs) I needed space because I was in shock. But occasionally, I headed over to my old stomping grounds, the old neighborhood, to party with Benny. Oh, yeah, man. Paul. What's up? And my other friend. Ray. Hey. Ray was the bootlegger's husband's stern man. He lived in a shack next door to Captain Donald's building. Because of our status as outsiders, we'd become fast friends the summer before. We were the same age, young and strong and tough. We played lots of cards. Damn. Rummy. Oh, not again. And listened to rock and roll. And both of us had escaped strict religious upbringings. 
me the cult of the Irish Roman Catholic. He took the chalice, and once more giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this, all of you, and drink from it. This is the chalice of my blood. For Ray, it was a born-again Christian sect, complete with speaking in tongues and filled with fervent, non-sexual dancing. Ray and I also became buddies pretty quick because of a shared affection for various mind-altering substances, LSD, psychedelic mushrooms, and lots and lots and lots of weed. Ray was in a car headed to his old church. the second Sunday after I returned to the island. For reasons he was never able to explain, he had decided to return to God. Thank you, Jesus. The car hit a slick patch on the road and flipped over. And suddenly, Ray was paralyzed from the waist down. Just three nights before, we'd been partying with herb and drink on our remote main island. (laughs) Now, he was down in Portland in Maine Medical Center and was never going to walk again. A couple of weeks after the accident, I flew ashore and stuck out my thumb to hitchhike. When I got to the hospital, his girlfriend was there too. They'd always been a couple of horn dogs, and according to both Ray and her, please pardon this interruption. According to FCC regulations, the following hospital sex scene between Ray and his girlfriend Lori is considered explicit content. They were proud of their achievement and told me so. Yeah, man, it it was good. With the help of a nurse, we got him out of bed and into a wheelchair and rolled Ray outside, where a steady breeze blew trash across Main Med's front parking lot. Under the noonday sun, we each smoked a huge joint, (laughs) and we smoked many cigarettes and drank rum disguised as Coke. After about an hour, we were cold, so we returned to his room and laughed at the TV for a bit. (laughs) (laughs) All right, dude, I'll see you in a couple weeks. Try to stay out of trouble. (laughs) See you later. Then I took off to visit Alice. A couple of weeks later... On a gloomy, rainy spring day, I visited him again. When I got to his room, a hospital employee with a clipboard was sitting beside his bed. I gave him a wave, and he nodded. 
Well, I see you have a visitor, the woman said. I'll come back later. I don't want to overwhelm you. I know there's a lot to think about. She stood and smiled at me, then walked away. Hey, dude, I said. What's up? <laughs> he grunted. You need anything? Ray closed his eyes and shook his head no. The expression on his face was stony. Our next twenty minutes were nearly silent. I didn't know what to say or do. I was woefully unprepared to help him deal with the situation. Uh, well, I gotta go. Alice is picking me up, I said, standing to leave. Let me know when you get settled at your new place. <laughs> Ray was moving to an assisted living facility to be taught how to function in a world without the use of his lower body. I'll, I'll come and see you, I said, lying, averting my eyes. <laughs> I, I'll bring lobsters. And I walked away and never visited Ray again. A half dozen years later, after I left Matinicus, I was strolling in downtown Freeport, Maine, a shopping mecca, with my parents on a beautiful summer day. I spotted Ray on the sidewalk, rolling in our direction. Hey, what's in that window over there? I quickly fabricated an excuse and led my parents across the street to examine some banal storefront's window display. I didn't want to have to introduce, then explain, Ray to my mother and father. But the real reason I crossed the street was to avoid an uncomfortable reunion with someone I had abandoned. Even now, so many years later, I wince at this memory. Embarrassed. Ashamed. Guilty. Haunted. I've replayed the scene in my brain so many times. It's like an old movie to me now. I see him in the chair, wearing an orange t-shirt. His muscular upper body is well-toned, wearing black leather gloves, pushing his wheels. Tenacious look on his face. For years afterwards, I have feared that he spotted me. But Ray, concentrating on his rolling path, couldn't possibly look at the face of each person potentially blocking his way. Not a chance he saw me. At least, I hope not. Thanks to Captain Edwin Mitchell and his sweet wife, Nan, my second year on Matinicus was much better simply because they treated me with respect. The Mitchells were an intelligent and well-read team. He was thin, strong, and handsome, with a well-trimmed beard. She was kind and beautiful, with a quick smile and understanding eyes and ears. They were good parents to their two daughters, fine citizens, and they didn't treat me like their slave. Plus, Edwin's love for Nan was so obvious and endearing. So he didn't dub around and delay the end of the workday as a way to avoid going home. Edwin, without a doubt, was the smartest fella on Matinicus. 
Born and raised on the island, he graduated from the University of Maine. Oh, Phil, the Steins to dear old Maine. Followed, coincidentally, by a tour in the United States Coast Guard as an officer. Then he returned to the island with Nan to lobster and raise their kids. I thoroughly enjoyed my time hauling traps with Captain Edwin, since our conversations focused mostly on politics, history, and current events. He was a sensible and rational being, and Captain Edwin often questioned my anarchistic statements in the real world that probably wouldn't work and gently corrected what he viewed as flaws in my thinking there was another huge perk food this may have been the best sandwich i've ever eaten mm, so good our daily lunches were delicious crab rolls on nan's homemade bread after Mary Margaret's sloppy sandwiches, turkey bologna, turkey bologna, turkey, turkey ham, turkey, turkey salami, salami, and tuna, and fish. tuna fish, and Donald's grumbling, Mary Margaret, if you had a second brain, uh, that brain would be very lonely. I was in heaven, and twice a week the Mitchells invited me up to supper. Mm. Man, this is maybe the best chicken. I've ever eaten. You're, you're an amazing chef, really. Nan's meals were always superb and delicious with stimulating and entertaining table talk. And after dinner, while taking a shower, I didn't have to set a timer. Thankfully, their water wasn't tainted by kerosene, like Captain Donald and Mary Margaret's. It was heavy in iron, though which stained everything rusty. But at least my shower didn't leave me smelling like kerosene. My housing was awesome. I had the entire upstairs of Captain Edwin's fish house, about twice the size of my old room at Captain Donald's. It was like a studio apartment, almost, surrounded by islands, ledges, boats, and open ocean. There was a tiny kitchenette, with a nice gas stove and a normal-sized refrigerator. There was an actual sink that drained into the harbor and a countertop beneath a window with a long southern view. Six miles distant of the ever-present beacon on Matinicus Rock, I especially enjoyed foggy days when the lighthouse's horn would wail and echo through the mist. Edwin's fish house sat on the edge of the island's lower harbor. There were other shacks around me, but mostly workshops, and nobody lived in them full-time. So when the workday ended, the harbor front usually became all mine. And I was glad my old neighborhood was a 15-minute stroll away because I was so easily distracted and needed to focus. Because I was trying to be a writer, my writing couldn't afford disruption. Because my writing wasn't going so well. No one at the New Yorker magazine 
seemed interested in any of the poems that I sent. I live in a shack with no running water. Including the poems about living in a shack with no running water. And the store well is a third of a mile away by rowboat. Or epic poems pondering the Rodney King riots' impact on American history. Pavement City on Fire. And I miss the mahogany table from the sunk sailboat, still bolted to Captain Donald's floor. My new table in Captain Edwin's shack was a little bigger, though, and had plenty of room for my piles of papers and vices. With my typewriter in the exact center, the table fit nicely in front of the large window on the east side of the room. The view featured a deserted aisle a mere hundred yards from Captain Edwin's wharf. Wheaton's Island, abandoned four decades earlier. Ten acres of rock and spruce with a foursome of weather-beaten structures built so ruggedly that neglect and abandonment couldn't destroy the ancient pylons, pillars, and braces that held the buildings perched on ledge and seaweed. All the windows and doors in the mini-fishing village had been stolen by Matinicus thieves decades before. My window was a picture frame around Wheaton's. A living, moving, breathing portrait of land and sea in constant flux, thanks to the winds and tides, better than any painting or television or movie. The only drawback of my new pad was the lack of running water. While living at Captain Donald's, the store well was conveniently located. Not a big deal, really. When I was in Haiti a couple of years before, when I was in the United States Coast Guard, I visited a village where the closest potable water was seven miles away. That's right, seven miles to the nearest clean water. My Matinicus chore was easy in comparison. Even though moving to Captain Edwin's in the lower harbor put me farther away from the store well, and made fetching water more work, I kept on reminding myself that it was still nothing compared to a Haitian's hike for water. Once a week, I'd lower the skiff from Captain Edwin's wharf, loaded with six milk crates of empty jugs, and row across the harbor. Slack high water made the third of a mile row the easiest, and that wasn't always the most convenient time to go, but I'd rather have gone thirsty than try to fetch water when the tide was low. After landing on the store beach, I'd lug the milk crates up to the well, not far from the spot where the natives scalped Ebenezer Hall a couple of centuries before. 
There was a trick to tilting the water bucket correctly before dropping it into the well. Dropped at an incorrect angle, the bucket would float on the surface of the well, 12 feet down, and no amount of jerking or pulling would sink a floating bucket. Haul up the empty bucket and try again. Even on the winter's coldest days, when the top couple of inches of the well froze, and I'd have to use a long tree limb kept nearby for this very purpose, to bash and smash ice chunks until there was enough room to drop the bucket. And after filling the water jugs and lugging them back to the boat, the row back to the fish house was always harder due to the couple hundred extra pounds of drinking water. Once back at the wharf, I'd use Captain Edwin's donkey capstan powered by a loud single-lung engine to haul the skiff and her watery load onto the wharf. Then I'd lug each cumbersome crate up my shaky staircase. When I was finished, I'd pour a tall glass of water, kick back, and drink the liquid fruit of my labor. In early June, Captain Edwin and Nan flew to the mainland for a couple of days for a family event, so I had a little bit of time off. <coughs> Not having to get up in the morning and go out and haul lobster traps meant two things. <coughs> First, I could stay up late. and listen to The Larry King Show. Live from the nation's capital, The Larry King Show, America's favorite talk program. An overnight radio program that I love. Providing you the opportunity to talk directly with Larry and his guests. But due to my daily early start time, I normally couldn't usually tune in for. Now, radio's most talked about interviewer and the host of our program, Larry King. Good evening on this Monday night, The Larry King Show is swinging again. Another night, another week of... Secondly, a couple of days off was more than enough time to enjoy some LSD that had come in the mail from some friends, enough for five trips if I doled them out two at a time. So, late in the afternoon, I took a couple of hits of the psychedelic a couple of hits of the psychedelic LSD. And like I've always done when dabbling with this sort of stuff, put an index card in my back pocket with the words, It's only the drug. In case I needed a reality check later. It's, it's only it's the drug. drug. And the evening went well. The familiar wharf and seascape and Wheaton's Island became wonderfully colorful and wildly distorted. 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 The tide was going out and the water was moving magically while the setting sun danced fantastically. My consciousness shifted. My consciousness shifted. 
consciousness shift consciousness shift consciousness shift back and forth an altered perception began to develop that tried to provide insight about my role here on earth why am i here why am i here why am i here why am i here Hours passed and passed, and then finally, the Larry King show began, and I sat in my shack smoking weed <coughs> and listening to the radio. The Larry King show comes to you via the Mutual Radio Network. The Larry King show comes to you via the Mutual Larry Radio King Network. To you via Larry King show comes to you via, via the Mutual Radio, radio Network. Network, providing you the opportunity to talk directly with Larry, Larry King. King. Yes. Now, radio's most talked about interviewer and the host of our program, Larry King. Larry King. Onward to Open Phone America, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Hello. Uh, good morning, Larry. How are you? Fine. You were talking before about uh, Ronald Reagan, and uh, I, this is going to sound like kind of an off-the-wall question, but uh, uh, he has that full head of hair. Do you think that's really his hair? It is. It is? Mm. How can you be sure? Because I don't know, but people have said that it is, and who cares? We go to Baltimore, Maryland. Hello. Worried that any further talk about Ronald Reagan would trigger a bad trip, I snapped the radio off, and at the same exact moment, the lone candle that had been illuminating my room suddenly went out. What the hell? Extinguished. Uh-oh. For no reason. Uh. No breeze or wind or snuffer. It's only the drug. It's only the drug. It's only the drug. The total darkness was eerie. It's, it's only the drug. It's only the drug. It's only the drug. And I was starting to feel a little bit nervous. Maybe anxious? It's only the drug. Obviously, I needed to get outside. I opened the door and stepped out and went down the stairs and onto the wharf, looking towards the harbor. What the hell? The scene shocked me. The tide had drained all the way out. Captain Edwin's boat, plus a half dozen others, What the frig? were laying on their sides at their moorings. It was a friggin' disaster, and it was dark. dark. Darker than usual, which meant the light on Matinicus Rock wasn't flashing. I turned around and looked six miles to the south. The light and the lighthouse was missing. It's only the drug. It was like something out of the apocalypse or... The rapture. I tried to maintain control. It's only the drug. Panic I knew would lead to further disaster. How could the lighthouse be out? The scene just didn't make sense. How could the harbor's water be missing? I closed my eyes tight and muttered the magic words again. It's only the drug. It's only the drug. It's only the drug. And then I opened my eyes and looked towards the mooring. Captain Edwin's boat, and all the others were floating and bobbing peacefully once again. Then the familiar flash of the Matinicus Rock Lighthouse filled the night sky, echoing with streaks and tracers of light reaching towards the horizon and heaven. And I breathed relief. The world was not ending. I climbed the staircase and went back into my room and flicked the radio back on. Keep listening to the show. What do you want, Jack? 
I was so lucky compared to mostly everyone else on the planet. A nice shack on a remote island, a job, a decent stash of drugs, a little money in the bank, a girlfriend named Alice. I was overcome with gratitude. 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 Thank you for listening. And remember, the Crash Program is commercial-free. Thanks to listener support via Patreon, where five bucks a month gets all sorts of perks, including a Mary Margaret sticker. I'm sure you'd want that. And access to the Patreon-only audio collection from my time in the U.S. Coast Guard fighting the war on drugs and the war on Haitian refugees. And remember, be careful on Tough Island. He's big and strong, he's sad and mad, and a little bit funny, you are listening to